You are listening to the podcast of the Gallery Church. Our desire is to display the goodness of God's grace and love to New York City. For more information about our church, please visit us on the web at gallerychurch.com. Welcome to Gallery Church. Um, it's good to see you guys this morning. We're going to be in the book of 1 Kings this morning, um, specifically in chapter 19, looking at verses 19 through 21 in chapter 19, the call of Elisha. So if you'd like to go there, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and then all the way to First Kings. There you go. Um, for the past few weeks, we've been dissecting a few Old Testament narratives in the hopes that... Um, we might better orient ourselves into the ways of Jesus as we begin 2023. And our biggest hope as a church community as we set out in this new year is that everything within our church and everything that we do is simply an extension of the truth that we are here because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. And we have responded to that love by pouring our love back unto the Lord and then to others. Um, and so we use that focus as we look at 1 Kings 19 this morning, okay? Why don't you read with me? It says this. So he departed from there, this is Elijah, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Just take a minute and ask the Lord um, to remove all the distractions this morning. That all the fears and anxieties that we carry into this room this morning, all the busy to-do lists that we have going on, that they would just be pushed to the side. Would you just ask the Lord to speak to your heart this morning? And then if you would be just so kind to ask um, the Lord to, to grant me wisdom and clarity as I speak this morning. Well, Father, we love you. We trust you. We lean into your everlasting and gracious arms this morning. Would you bless us? Amen. Well, this morning, I want to take you back to my college days. Um, it seems way back, nearly a decade ago, in fact, but I take you back to a small Baptist liberal arts school called Dallas Baptist University, um, and I sort of came across this, what felt like a very large school of 5,000 students, and everybody who went to like actual universities were like, that's nothing, that's not very many people, that's how many people were in my introductory English class for some of you. Um, but I went to what felt like a very large school because I had gone to a, a small private Christian high school in Houston, Texas, where I graduated with 56 people. Okay, it was a very, very small group of people, um, for better or for worse, mostly for worse. Um, and... Um, what was crazy about college is I got to, to meet so many new people, and everyone there seemed so friendly. You know how orientation day is. There's like 400 people. They're like bubbly as all get out, right? So excited to welcome you to this incredible, magical place called college, and they help you move into dorms, and they're like, and do you want to join our fraternity, and do you want to do this, and do you want to do that? Here's 400 things that you can do at our school. Um, but you know what? Even at orientation day, I remember um, that I gained a ton of friends, and it was so different because I didn't have very many friends in high school, um, and it was just so different because all the things that made me weird in high school made me really cool in college. I don't know if that, that happened to you, but like that hipster vibe was not cool in high school, but it happened to be kind of cool that like, oh, people are like, oh, you listen to records? That's really neat. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yet now, when you, when you hang out with middle schoolers or high schoolers, they're like, 
yeah, we listen to records. Like, what, what do you mean? Everything sort of shifted a little bit. Um, but people actually liked me. It was interesting because I'd never really experienced that in high school. And so as a result of that, because I'm a people pleaser, I got involved in literally everything. Okay, maybe you had the same experience because this seems to be the great equalizer of college, that there's a place for everyone there because there's so many people there. And so I just decided to have as many friends as possible. Um, I got involved in everything, and, and I remember there were tents everywhere in orientation day. And I, I joined a fraternity, which at Dallas Baptist University meant um, drinking coffee, wearing skinny jeans, and playing guitar on the quad. Um, and I joined a history society, and I joined an athletic squad called the Minutemen, where we'd go to every athletic game, which was mediocre because we were D2 and not very good. And it was all great, though, because I was a part of so many great things, and, and for for the most part, my grades were pretty good, except for one class, Old Testament. It was one of those classes where the professor enjoyed failing most people, which in hindsight makes sense um, because it makes sense he didn't teach New Testament survey because he wasn't, you know, didn't really feel like there was a lot of grace. Um, and and I ended up, I ended up um, failing my midterm in that class, which is funny because now I'm preaching Old Testament, but... I failed my midterm in that class, and, and can you imagine what it did to my soul? Can you imagine? I was a Christian, and I failed an Old Testament midterm because I couldn't remember who the father of Elisha was. It was because while I listened in class and even studied quite a bit, I had fully overcommitted myself to literally everything, which means I was actually exercising a lack of commitment to my education, classic freshman. And listen, this is really, really easy. I mean, think about the city that we live in, the greatest city in the world. Look how overcommitted everyone is. I mean, work is an absolute doozy for many, where working 60 to 70 hours a week is kind of the norm. And so it's no surprise that we live in a culture that lacks commitment, because overcommitment causes a lack of commitment. And we live in a city that heralds, rejoices, in fact, and those who are overcommitted, for they shall inherit wealth, success, status, quote, the good things in life. But listen, overcommitment causes a lack of commitment because you're just one person. And no, I'm not just talking about burnout. I'm actually primarily talking about loving and desiring, worshiping many things that are not actually what you are called to love, desire, and worship. We are a people of overcommitment to many, many things that we seek out to be enough for our longing souls, as we have said over and over throughout this fully committed series, and it will never be good enough. We're a culture of overcommitment that has led to a lack of commitment. And lack of commitment is not just plaguing outside of the church, it's plaguing the church. Specifically, Christianity in America is being plagued by a lack of commitment. And for us here at Gallery Church, we want to dig our paddles deep into the overwhelming cultural current and collectively paddle against it and head to the calm waters of Christ with as many people on board as possible. Because our vision is that we would be a people that doesn't lack commitment, but is fully committed, committed to the Lord and to his ways. And here's the thing. It's not actually overwhelming because Jesus tells us that he's going to do it with us and therefore it's attainable. We can paddle against the overwhelming cultural currents around us because God himself is with us. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the incredible life of Elisha, specifically the call that God places in his life. And we're going to see how these things sort of parse out and how we can be a people who are fully committed, okay? This is a man who shows us exactly this, right? So we're going to take a look at this text and see who is calling, who is being called, the urgency within the calling, and then the response to the calling, okay? So let's take a look at verse 19. Verse 19 in chapter 19 says this. It says, so he departed from there. This was Elijah, who we talked about last week, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Now, last week, 
we looked at Elijah's unexpected disappointment and how unexpected disappointment led to despair. His despair was so deep that he asked God to take his life away from him. He was wrought with anxiety and fear, unable to draw himself up out of the deepest of depths, but God, rich in mercy, led Elijah to a cave and drew near to him, spoke to him in a gentle whisper, and renewed his vision. And we left off with the Lord saying this, Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Now, in the story that we looked at last week, God gave assurance and confidence to Elijah by way of reminding him that he was still working on plan A. Things didn't change, and that his desire is that Elijah would be fully a part and continue to be a part of that plan and lean on his strength and not his own. A call not just to Elijah, but also a call to us. And so beautiful was the renewed vision, because in it was a gift that Elijah probably didn't expect because he felt like he was the only one left in all of Israel. The gift was community. God reassured him that he was not the only one left, that he needed to draw near to other believers, other people of faith, so that he could experience the joy of fellowship and the joy of life together. And the first thing the prophet does is exactly that. Verse 19, he goes straight to Elisha, goes straight to community. And perhaps he went because he was ready to give the prophetic work over to a young prophet who had more energy than he did. But I think also he desired greatly to teach and mentor this young prophet. What a a cool opportunity I think he saw that he was going to be able to share the things that he was passionate about with others and get them passionate about it too, right? All for the sake of the kingdom in this renewed vision that Elijah gets, right? I'm imagining that after his experience with God, he's ready to talk about it, right? And I think that's really neat. But additionally, we must be encouraged here, just from the onset, by the commitment of Elijah, understanding that just because he had heard this word from the Lord and experienced God in the incredible, miraculous way that we looked at earlier in chapter 19, that while to be sure it was a mountaintop experience, It didn't just fix everything. It didn't just fix all of his woes. No, to be sure. He would still be wrestling with everything that he was wrestling with on the mountaintop because those thoughts, those feelings, they don't just go away. Rather, instead, what's beautiful is that they become a part of our story. They became a part of his story, his narrative, and he had to be working through them. Not just saying, yep, they're gone. Working through them with the Lord. And most importantly, too, after that is with others. And so part of what this newfound relationship with Elisha is for is that real good sense of community. Life together means life together. Praying through our worries. Talking through the deepest of depths sort of moments. Celebrating our mountaintop experiences with one another. And so Elisha departs and seeks out Elisha. Now, there's a lot to unpack in just verse 19. Already we know that, right? The Bible is really cool like that. If you don't know that, that you can actually just parse out loads of implications just from a little bit of text. That's what we do when we say, I'm going to meditate on God's word. We just parse out all these incredible things and the spirit then just unloads them onto us and we get all these great little tidbits from scripture. From scripture. So we're going to highlight a few portions here, okay? First, in just verse 19, the Lord is calling Elisha through Elijah, the prophet, to full vocational prophetic ministry, okay, through Elijah. Now, this is the Lord's desire. He makes it known to Elijah back before verse 19, and I think it's important to recognize a sort of a blow-your-mind kind of thing, which is the incredible, powerful movement of the Spirit, that at the very moment that Elijah's needs are being met by Yahweh Elohim, the creator of the universe, he is also speaking to Elisha. That's incredible. That at the very moment 
that this conversation is taking place between Elijah and the Lord. The Lord is also speaking to Elisha. And you can be sure many, many others, which is good news. How incredible great is our God, right? And what's amazing is that even in the midst of this incredibly egregious feeling situation, like depressing situation that Elijah experiences, God is at work. Because even when you don't see it or even when you don't feel it, God is working. And remember that that has to ring true for us. And at the onset, it's important that we remember this, that we keep this at focus, that the Spirit, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, is intervening, is explaining, is comforting, is directing, is guiding, is loving, and is fully at work. Now, second, we get the name of this fella, a wonderful family name in Shaphat. Kids always laugh at that one, by the way, when I've shared this in youth groups. They're always like, <laughs> Shaphat. But look, that's not really the implication here, okay? Which is typically what happens in youth groups. You have to be like, let's revert our attention a little bit. Um, but this guy's name, Elisha, I mean, it is incredible. It's incredible. Now, before we get there, we got to understand where he's from, okay? Abel Mahola is situated south of the Galilean Sea, the Galilean region, right along the Jordan River, okay? It's flowing south to the Dead Sea. And it becomes very clear and obvious in this passage that Elisha is very, very wealthy, incredibly wealthy, because he has significant livestock, which is the currency of the day. And we know that because of what Elisha is found doing, right? He's plowing. He is very much so in charge of the operation out there because he's on the 12th plow, which means there's a lot of plows, and that's really implied, okay? He's working, he's overseeing. But check out what his name means. It means, God is my salvation. Now, names meant so much at this time. The meaning behind a name was imperative and even a beautiful act of worship. It informed families at times of where they had been, where they wanted to go, where their hope rested, and the characteristics and qualities that they would desire for their children. Now remember, shame honor culture as well. So if you didn't live up to your name, that would be problematic. God is my salvation. Now, at first, we're kind of like, yeah, that's a, that's a super nice name. Like, okay, cool. What a good reminder, right? But hold on. Elisha was born into a family committed to the ways of the Lord. Now, you'd say, yeah, <laughs> because they were people of faith. Okay. But Elisha was very likely in his early 20s which means he was probably born right at the beginning of Ahab's rule in Israel or at the very end of Ahab's father Omri's rule in Israel. Check out what the Bible says about their rule, okay? Here's Omri. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And here's what it says about Ahab. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Check this out. More than all who were before him. Now, what's interesting is this. The kings in Israel, usually what their spiritual disposition is, is a mirror into the spiritual disposition of the people. But the parents of Elisha make a public declaration in these days and say, look at this blessing from Yahweh Elohim in the house of Shaphat, for we shall call him Elisha. God is my salvation. Beautiful. And what a word for us as a community, fully committed to the public and private declaration that the Lord deserves our full attention, full devotion, and full affection because he is the God of salvation. And not just the God, but our God. Now finally, let's recognize the working of the Holy Spirit again in the life of Elisha, okay? Plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, he was on the 12th, and all this time, 
All this time, I am certain that Elisha is living his life in simple obedience to that which God has given him. If he's out there with 12 yokes of oxen and is driving the final one, it's a clear recognition of strong work ethic, strong character. But if I could be so bold, it is so much more than that. It is living in simple obedience to be fully committed to that which God has called you to be over. And we must make this note because it is the only way to explain the response of Elisha that we then get in the second part of verse 19 into verse 20. And so there's this like little golden nugget deposit that we get in the scriptures that says, be faithful over what the Lord has blessed you with. But then we see that this great calling that God is going to give to Elisha through Elijah isn't just a calling, but it's an urgent one. Verses 19b through 20. Take a look. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, that question doesn't sound like he's too pleased, does it? What have, what have I done to you that you want to go back? Like, am I not worthy enough of this call like, that you would come and serve me? What, what's going on here? Now, I don't imagine that Elijah was probably a super warm or fuzzy guy. Um, he was fuzzy, to be sure, uh, because we know him to be actually very grisly. Um, but he, he certainly wasn't enjoying himself at variety coffee shop with a cappuccino asking you about your feelings on the movement of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's just not really the kind of guy that he was, and which just wasn't really his MO in terms of ministry. He was a prophet, not so much a counselor. But probably, okay, this, this interaction was kind of a funny interaction. This dude is a wilderness man, okay? He's a wilderness man, spends a lot of time alone. In fact, I actually end up thinking a lot when I think of Elijah of the show Alone. Have you guys ever seen the show Alone on Netflix? It's a must watch. You got to watch all of it. It's incredible. Okay, Alone is literally where survival experts basically, they go outside in the polar wilderness with 10 items and the last person remaining wins $500,000. And it's, it's brutal because they all get parasites and scurvy and, 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 and Elijah would be like the perfect person for this. Like, he would definitely last the longest. He would be such a good contestant, all right? But we say this because it's important to recognize that, that he probably was kind of like, I don't exactly know how to interact in this situation. I mean, look at the way he throws his cloak, okay? He passes by him and casts his cloak upon him, and he just, like, leaves, It's awkward. It's, it's uncomfortable. And Elisha, you would think, would be a little confused. You'd think. You're like, that's weird. Who's this grizzly fellow who just threw this itchy cloak on me? What's going on here? But instead, and this is what's so powerful, he responds with urgency. Verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. So two things here click for Elisha, I think. First, he is recognizing, recognizing that he's actually given something that's costly. Itchy probably, but costly. Cloaks weren't just used for anyone. This word is actually selected very carefully. This was a garment of immense value and visual power. This was a beautiful and costly garment, certainly made of animal hair, and precious enough to be worn by a king, but in Zechariah, the prophetic book of Zechariah, we see that it's actually seen as a garment fit for the great seer of the people of Israel. So one doesn't just put the cloak on. Not everybody can handle the cloak. They must be fit for the cloak. And this is the cloak of Elijah. And let's be clear, Elijah was known. People knew who he was. They weren't necessarily friends with him because he was really grisly, right? But, but 
they knew exactly who he was. This is the man who the, the Spirit of God revived somebody from the dead through him. This is Elijah, and his cloak is now on me. Now, for me, there are lots of different things in our lives that hold spiritual significance. This cloak certainly would have held great spiritual significance to Elisha. For, for me, I think about this little, little pocket Bible that my granddaddy, uh, my mom's dad, who died when she was 17, and she told us that we call him granddaddy. I never met him, but I didn't know him. But apparently, we would have been really tight since we have many of the same interests in life. He and my grandmother were missionaries in Taiwan, um, and that's where my mom was born. And then they moved to West Texas, which is... a big jump, but um, that's where he then started serving in in the oil field and then also evangelism on the oil field. And he had a radio show and he preached and evangelized. and, And here's the deal. My mom gave me this little pocket Bible that he used when he evangelized when I graduated from, from uh, college. And um, it's not a cloak, right? He wasn't a prophet. And I'm also definitely not a prophet in that sense. Um, But Think on the level of receiving something of such significance that it almost informs you or guides you to some degree of this like great passion that's inside of you that then just sort of begins to be cultivated even further and further, recognizing that like this is something that in my family people did. In other words, right, that faithfulness in past generation leads to faithfulness in future generations too, which is exactly what's not happening in the place of Israel with Ahab and Omri. But I can just imagine for just just a glimpse of what Elisha must have felt like to receive this cloak. And then not only that, but the humility in which Elijah would have had to bless Elisha with the cloak, getting to be the blessing hand that says, Elisha, you have been chosen. You've been set apart to do the work of the Lord. Second, the Spirit has been working in his heart the entire time. How? Look, he ran to him. But also, Elisha didn't ask Elijah to explain what he was doing. Not once do you see a question asking for explanation of what's going on. That is it. Elisha would sense, would know that this is it. Lord, I have heard, I have felt that which you have put within me, and I have been faithfully waiting for you to call, and here it is, the call of the Lord, directed, prompted by the Spirit, initiated in the lowliest of Elijah's life back earlier in chapter 19, and now Elisha is seeing this incredible fruition of what God has been prompting him to. So check it out. Elisha and Elijah's conversation, once Elijah catches up with him, fully understanding what's happening here, Elisha knows that he is about to have to leave everything that he was faithfully watching over for this urgent calling. And so he asks, what does he say? He says, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Natural to ask, right? And Elijah is a bit disappointed, and perhaps a little old man crabbiness is setting in a little bit. He's like, dude, don't you realize who I am? What I'm asking here? And so whatever inference you want to make, it seems like he thinks that Elisha is a bit reluctant to follow him. And so he says, go back. Like, what have I done to you? Have I offended you? And that's certainly something to ponder for sure, because in the end, though, you know, we sort of actually get clued into what happens. Regardless, Elijah grants him permission to go back because Elisha goes back. And you can sort of tell from the disposition of Elisha that he's not just going to like leave if Elijah said no, right? So Elijah sort of grants him permission to go back. And most likely he just wants to make sure to be certain that Elisha understands that he must follow him moving forward, that this is God's will. This is God is calling you to follow and that you can't just return. So is the picture of the urgency here for Elisha, and so is the picture for the urgency of following the ways of the Lord. There is no turning back. One must decide. For the kingdom of heaven is not for the overcommitted. It is for the fully committed to the ways of the Lord. 
For the kingdom of heaven is not for the overcommitted. It is for the fully committed to the ways of the Lord. Now, when I hear that, maybe this is what you did when you heard that. It's to be like, oh, especially those of you who know me, that seems like a statement that's quite a bummer for me because many would look at my life and do look at my life and say, brother, you look a little overcommitted at a bivocational pastor. And believe me, there's some great wisdom in checking in on that kind of overcommitment for sure. But let me be clear. Living in the grace of God and doing what he has called you to do will never be overcommitment if it is what you are called to do. For he promises you that I will equip you for every good work and that is the work that he's called you to. So what do you need? You need community to make sure it's actually what God's called you to do. And I think the word here is actually not just overcommitment in the sense that we think of it like burnout because there's a bajillion books on Amazon you can buy about burnout and that's such the like narrative, like get out of here with that. I mean, I get it. I get it, okay? I'm not like, read a book about burnout, but that's not what's happening here. I think the word here is overcommitment to masters. For Jesus makes it plain in the gospels. You can't serve two masters. If I'm living for myself and for God, I will lack commitment because I'm overcommitted. I'm overcommitted to the glamour of self-will, and self-will will win. And it is no surprise, no surprise for us to hear this, that Americans have a commitment problem. That's not surprising. Relational commitment problems are on a massive uptick this decade, right? I won't even scare you with the numbers, but commitment problems are such a problem that the younger generations have absolutely no interest in certain traditional commitments because they don't see very many people around them showing them the value of them, mainly because their parents aren't committed to it. Herein lies the issue in 1 Kings 19 of the people of Israel. The king of Israel leads them away from the Lord. And the people follow. And as you can imagine, this lack of commitment that we experience here in New York City, in the world, in America, it's impacting the church in profound ways, but two ways in particular, not limited to these two, but these are the first that came to my mind. Okay, first, there are people who are overcommitted in the church, and it leads to burnout, which leads to a lack of commitment because you just have to fully withdraw. That's one. And sometimes you need a break, and that's okay. But there are those who are so, so lacking in commitment because they have fully withdrawn. And not because there's not legitimate reasons for their withdrawing or real pains or real hurts, but just a reality. And second, there are people who just have a straight-up lack of commitment to the church because it's now normative to come to church once a month because that's what they have to give. And in New York City, as we all know, we have stuff to do, places to go people to see. And I'm not pouring out any shame. I get it, but it should not be a surprise to us if the church in New York City has a commitment problem, for we live in a culture of overcommitment that leads to a lack of commitment and a culture where people who see overcommitment don't want to burn out, so they then lack commitment. And honestly, it's harming the church. Now, let me be clear. I'm not coming down on this church about this issue. I actually believe that we have loads of people with loads of commitment. But we must, as a church community, be aware of the full landscape so that we can know how to respond to this grave issue that does face the church. Did you know that in a recent Barna poll, by the way, Barna polls are excellent if you want to go like, learn about what's going on in culture, what's going on in different industries. Barna poll said this. It says, fewer than one out of every five adults firmly believes that a congregational church is a critical element in their spiritual growth. 17% of adults said that a person's faith is meant to be developed mainly by involvement in a local church. And only 18% of adults embrace the idea that spiritual maturity requires involvement in a community of faith. Now, in response to this, there are a bunch of adults who claim that they had a biblical worldview. And so adults who claim to have a biblical worldview, in other words, they would say that the Bible, I sort of orient my life with the straight edge of Scripture, that this is the biblical worldview, I see things through Scripture— 
were focused on this. They said that only one-third of them who see life through a biblical lens embrace the necessity of growth in the company of other believers. One-third of people who say they have a biblical worldview say, yeah, church is important. Now, the team at Barna concluded this. Check this out. Figures like these show how soft people's commitment to God is. Americans are willing to expend some energy in religious activities, such as attending church and reading the Bible, and they're willing to throw some money in the offering basket. Because of such activities, they convince themselves that they are people of, quote, genuine faith. But when it comes time to truly establishing their priorities, making a tangible commitment to knowing and loving God, and to allowing him to change their character and lifestyle, most people stop short. We want to be spiritual. We want to have God's favor. But we're not sure we want him taking control of our lives and messing with the image and outcomes we've worked so hard to produce. Do you know what soft Christianity is? Uncle Screwtape, the chief demon, wrote this to Wormwood in the Screwtape letters. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. So how do we keep from soft Christianity? There's only one way, it must be that we be fully committed to whom and to what? To whom and to what? To the triune God and his call. Take a look at Elisha's response. Verse 21. His response to the calling. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now what's remarkable is that the urgency continues as we see his response. He goes, he says goodbye to his parents, and while he is there, he makes a public declaration to all that are there. What's the declaration? That he has made a complete break with his past, and he's deciding to follow after the will of God by following Elijah and humbling himself to be his attendant, going from a place of a full standing, wealthy and powerful, to a humble servant. How Christ-like, the spirit and Elijah at work. Now, there are two things to marvel at here. First, look at the fulfilled promise that comes out of Elijah's unexpected disappointment. Elisha's acceptance of the call was a sign that the entire promised judgment that God would execute on the Israelites as a result of their faithlessness and unrepentant hearts would indeed take place. And check this out. This is amazing. Through the judgment that is being issued, it is actually for the good of the Israelites. What a puzzle that is. For the good of them. Punishment for the good. What a puzzle. But through the prophets Elijah and Elisha, God establishes something. He establishes an enhanced authority for the prophets to come. Establishing that the people ought to listen to the authorized spokesman of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The prophets of Yahweh. And the prophets that would come would proclaim many, many messages. But the central message The central message was the name of Elisha, what it means. Salvation is coming. And guess what? It belongs to the Lord. The central message of the prophets that were to come was the Messiah. And Elisha's response was one that fully understood the urgency of the situation. Simply, God was calling, and he mustn't delay to accept that call. And so, in a very simple few verses in 1 Kings chapter 19, a very difficult question comes across. What about us? 
What about us? Have we accepted the call of God on our life? You'd be like, gosh, that's kind of an uncomfortable question. Because many of us in here have actually been Christians for a long time. And most of the time when you ask a Christian, what does it mean when you say, like, what's the will of God or the call of God on your life? It's very difficult to answer. It's very nuanced. So it seems. But the good news is that it's not actually as nuanced as we've made it. It's not actually as complicated as we've made it. And when I say we, I mean the church. There are a lot of people that don't want to come to church again because we overcomplicated it. Because we put a lot of things in the gap. And Jesus gives us a beautiful reminder in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, of exactly what we're called to. And what's beautiful, if you ever want to just for fun, go and read Luke chapter 9, and then also read 1 Kings 19, you'll see that Jesus uses it as a parallel. And Elisha and Elisha are what Jesus uses to give us our calling. Let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, and then we'll parse it out a little bit. It says this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The call. Follow me. Follow me. Who's being called? We are. By whom? Christ. And he's calling with urgency. Look at verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then these, the, the, the next one too, it says, I will follow you, Lord. But oh wait, no, there's a condition in my following. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's such immense contrast between Luke chapter 9 and 1 Kings chapter 19. Such immense contrast. Because with Jesus, he doesn't allow for any delay. There is no delay Jesus says there is absolutely no room for delay. What in the world is happening here, right? For us, we kind of read this and we're saying, this is not quite the Jesus I liked and wanted to see in the scripture. This is a little uncomfortable. This seems cruel. This seems not right. The man lost his father and you don't want him to go and, and, and love his family in the midst of that time. Like, what's wrong with you, Jesus? Why would you do this? This seems cruel, and by the way, we definitely have a hard time with Jesus when he gets closer to his crucifixion because he gets much more serious, right? But look at what Jesus is doing. He's denouncing the current culture, the current traditions, the current Mosaic law obligations and saying, I am greater than Elijah. Elisha got to go back because it was Elijah. But it's me now, and I'm greater than Elijah. For I am the prophet, the priest, and the king. Follow me. It's much more serious. He says, I'm reordering. I'm redefining. I'm renewing the relational structure that has been distorted since the fall. For my kingdom is one where those in the family of God center themselves on hearing and doing the word of God. 
Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And it's a difficult thing to swallow. So did Jesus really mean you can't bury your father? Let me ask you this. Did Jesus really mean you should cut off your right hand? Did he really mean that if, if I can't stop sinning that I should just cut it off? He's making a very clear point with great sincerity that the deepest longing of your soul requires an urgent, immediate response to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you, regardless of what it costs. And if you look into the Jewish sort of structure, the traditional structure of burial, it wasn't like someone dies and then you have a funeral the next weekend. It was like a year-long process of mourning. So that puts some things into perspective of what Jesus says. No, you can't delay for a year. And there's a word there for us, isn't there? For how often are we people that say, yeah, you know what, maybe next year. Maybe next month, maybe next week, things in my life will just sort of like sift out and like I'll figure it out and it'll be fine and then I can just figure it out and then I can actually follow Jesus with everything. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And that's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you now. And your answer, your response must be now. Yes, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. There are no conjunctions that can be placed after. But now, now what's incredibly beautiful about that is that in the midst of that calling, in the midst of, of Jesus calling us right now, when we think of leaving everything behind, what we really mean is those things are no longer the things you're overcommitted to. You're not overcommitted to those things anymore in the sense that they are not your masters. Because family can become your master. Friends can become your master. Your work can become your master. And Jesus makes it so incredibly plain. You have to choose me. You have to choose me. And why would we choose him? Because it is exactly what we were designed for. It was exactly what we were created for, to experience wholeness and life in Christ, because Christ is God. Well, that's good news. And so for us as a church, what is our response to this? Our response is to be fully committed. Fully committed. We see the Christ-likeness of Elisha, that he's fully committed to the call of God regardless of the cost. And the same thing should be true for us because we got an even greater picture, which is that Jesus was fully committed, fully committed enough to go to the cross so that you and I could experience life and have it for eternity and in abundance. And if that's true, not only does that change everything, but it means that I live my life for that. I live my life for that. And if the church, this church, lived their life for that, and that the extension of our church was that we were being the hands and feet of Jesus because the love of God had poured into our heart in such a way that we want to pour it out unto others. Man, revival will happen in New York City. Revival will happen in New York City. Because God is working. And he is calling us to join him. So let's join him. Let's build. Let's get pumped. Let's construct, let's dream, let's aspire. All with the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Well, Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. That in you we have experienced life experience it to the abundance. 
Father, I just ask this morning that for those who are in a situation where they're not sure they want to follow you, that they would recognize, Father, that you still have your arms wide open to them to talk about it, to speak about it, to wrestle with it. And maybe just the simple act of, of just saying, God, I'm, I'm hurting, or God, I, I don't quite understand, or I don't really see this, or I don't really feel this. But the simple, simple, simple obedience, the simple obedience of just saying, God, I, I want to talk to you. Father, there's so much to see within your scriptures. And this morning, we see a beautiful narrative of somebody who accepts this beautiful call. And I pray that for all of us, people who have and haven't, Lord, that we would just see the beauty. And that as we see the beauty, and, and we would really understand that it's beautiful because it's you. That we see your heart. That you love us. And that you want to know us. And that you want to be in a relationship with us. Father, we thank you for all that you are doing in the life of our church. Pray that as we continue and press into this year, that we would be a people fully committed to your ways, to your plans, to your purposes, and lean into the leading of the Spirit because there are beautiful, incredible things in store for us when we do so. Thank you for meeting with us now. Amen. Thank you for listening. We pray you are encouraged in your walk with God through this podcast. For more information about this church, please visit our website at gallerychurch.com.